0: Well, last chance to escape the building. Lock the doors. No, I'm just kidding. Grace and peace to you all. So we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We're about uh, three weeks in here. And uh, the reason that we're doing this is because the absolute best way to learn or understand what Jesus taught is by reading the Sermon on the Mount. And the absolute best way to learn what he expected from his disciples is to read the Sermon on the Mount. And the absolute best way to know how we, as modern Christians, should choose to live so that we are following God's path is to pay attention to what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, for those of you who have Bibles in front of you, is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And today we are in Matthew chapter 5. Before I get to that, though, I'm tell you about an old preacher. He uh, started all of his sermons with a joke. I'm sorry, I don't start my sermons with a joke. I should work on that. Hang on, let me think of a joke. What do you get if a vampire snowman bites you? Frostbite. Okay, now we know why I don't start my sermons with a joke. Okay. What did the stoplight say, stop say to the other stoplight? What did one stoplight say to the other stoplight? Yeah. What? Don't look, I'm going to change. Don't look, I'm going to change. <laughs> That's terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> okay, so there's two muffins. I'm stealing this from a friend of mine. There are two muffins in an oven. And one of them turns to the other one and says, Hey, is it getting warm in here? And the other one says, Ah, a talking muffin. Alright, now we all know why I don't tell jokes. Okay. But this old preacher starts every sermon with a joke. And he started one day with a uh, joke about, about Bible ignorance. People not knowing their way through the Bible. And where he said, oh yeah, someone came to me this week and asked what the epistles are. And I told him they were the wives of the apostles. <laughs> Which he thought was hysterical. And he went on to preach about the epistles. But after the sermon, he said there's another guy who came up and said, Pastor, I didn't get the joke. If they're not the wives of the apostles, whose wives were they? <laughs> See, There was a, a philosopher, a guy named Soren Kierkegaard. He said most of us read the Bible the way a mouse tries to remove cheese from a trap without getting caught. He said we read it as though we we're reading about someone else a long time ago. Because if we read the Bible differently, we might get caught by it. If we see the Bible as a story of the triumph of God's grace and the story of God searching for us, then look out because it will come alive and God will find us and we will know that we are found. You get to be found by God. There were uh, two university students. A Christian and a Muslim, they shared a room together. And as they became friends, their conversation turned to their beliefs because they were both very staunch in their beliefs. And the believer asked the Muslim if he'd ever read the Bible, and he said no. But he asked the Christian if he'd ever read the Quran, and he said no. So the uh, Christian said, You know what? I bet it would be interesting to read the Quran. I'll tell you what, we'll do it together. Once a week, we'll alternate books. One week we'll read the Quran, one week we'll read the Bible. And the other young man, the Muslim, they accepted the challenge and their friendship deepened. And during the second term there at school, the Muslim became a believer. He converted to, to Christianity. And then one evening, late in the term, he bursts into their room and he shouted at that longtime believer. He said, you deceived me. And the Christian said, what, what are you talking about? And the new believer opened up his Bible and said, I've been reading through here like you told me to. And I just read right here that the word is living and active. Amen. And he said, you knew all along that the Bible contained God's power and the Koran is just a book. I never had a chance. Amen. And the, the Christian said, oh, what? So wait, now you're going to hate me for life? Is that it? And he said, no, I just wanted you to know it wasn't fair. <laughs> now, what does any of this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus opened his teaching... By saying, look, the common sense religious ideas that you have right now, they're nonsense. Oh First arrow through the heart. He says, you know what, true blessings, they're achieved by recognizing our spiritual poverty, by seeking comfort for our mourning and things like that. All these things that people tell you not to do, those are the things that actually bring you closest to God. And according to Jesus then, He said, look, life is this community event. It's not an individual contest where we try to puff ourselves up in one area or another. But when the people are hearing that, they must be thinking like, well, that would mean showing my true self. That would mean revealing my weaknesses to the people around me. That would mean sharing all the bad stuff. That's frightening. How many people like to share bad stuff about themselves? got <laughs> one. <laughs> if you're wondering why no one's sitting next to you this morning at breakfast, that might be it. I'm just saying. But that's exactly what Jesus is telling the followers that they need to do. He says, look guys, you've got to show yourselves, and not just to each other. You've got to show yourselves to the whole world. So that everyone can see you living out this community path I'm talking about. He says, you need to be light and salt in this dark, tasteless world. But that's not what their culture told them to do. That's not what our culture tells us to do either, is it? Keep to yourself. Be strong. But Jesus was serious about this. He meant this. His teaching was so radical, it was so different. Everyone must have been wondering, could he possibly be right, or is he just some other nut with a screw loose who's twisting or ignoring the law and the prophets? They had these canonized scriptures. Canonized maybe not the right word. They had this collection of scrolls, collection of scriptures, the way that they knew that God intended them to live. Is Jesus teaching something that's different than what is in the word and maybe whispers started in the crowd or maybe just jesus just knew or anticipated people were going to start questioning him so he addressed their concerns you can pick up in the bible here matthew chapter 5 verse 17 jesus said do not think that i have come to abolish the law or the prophets i have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them now i'm going to give you your greek lesson for the morning you ready abolish it's the word kataluo everyone say kataluo I yeah gonna gonna teach you enough greek to read the bible how about that <clears throat> kataluo it means to loose something which has been bound up or fastened kind of like untying a burden from an animal at the end of a trip or putting down your suitcases when you get to your destination Sometimes it was used to describe the way that people took apart something, like demolishing a house or a building to, to dismantle it. So Jesus is saying he didn't come to separate people from the instruction of Scripture. Instead, he said, I'm here to fulfill those instructions. All right, second Greek word for the day, and then I'm going to quit. Play rao. Everyone say, play Play rao. Play rao. <laughs> So, where the word fulfill comes from. In this context, it means to bring out the full meaning of. I love Greek words because they always mean lots of English words. <laughs> to bring out the full meaning of. So instead of coming to set aside the teachings of Scripture, Jesus came, he said, to bring out the full meaning of what those words mean. To understand what that might mean, I'm going to have to talk about something horrible first. Make sure the children are not in the room. Right, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 10 through 14. This is a part of the law. This is one of the instructions that Moses gave to the people of Israel. When you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her home into your house, have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you're not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. So this was the rule. When attacking an enemy people, if you saw a woman you wanted, you could make her your wife. That was the rule. That was the law. And in order to do that, all you had to do was kill her family and then take her as part of your spoils of war. Wow. This is horrible, by the way. So why is it in Scripture like it's okay? Because this is horrible. How many of you think this would be a great way to live our lives today? I don't see a single hand but this is in the word of God right well I got to tell you believe it or not this was a step forward for the culture at the time so here's the old way hey I just saw a woman I liked I'm going to kill her entire family take her home as a slave and use her until I'm tired of her and then discard her harsh Vicious, in fact. So this is the new way. You see a woman you like, you kill her entire family, you take her home. But there is no immediate forced rape into marriage. Instead, you move her in and you care for her according to the rules of caring for a beloved wife. And you give her 30 days to mourn for her family. And then you marry her, giving her full status as a spouse not treating her as property or as a concubine, and if you decide that you're done with her, you have to support her to whatever destination she chooses, even if that's back to her own people, and the divorce becomes your dishonor, not hers, which was a big deal back then. They lived in a society where honor and shame meant everything. They didn't know about right or wrong, they just did honor and shame. I am honored by this, I am dishonored by that. People thought twice before they allowed any dishonor to fall on themselves. Now, is this new way ideal? Absolutely not. This is not the ideal for marriage. Slaughtering your future wife's family and forcing her to marry you, not a good thing. I can point to lots of places in the Bible that say that. But... It's not ideal, but this puts a lot of power in the hands of the woman that was not the case before. It is a step in the right direction. It's not the end of movement in the right direction, but it is a step in the right direction. This is called, and this is a fancy theological term, I apologize, it's called redemptive movement theology. Redemptive movement theology says... You are at point A. Point A is bad. Let's move you to point B as a step towards getting you to where we want you to be at point C. So, from point A to point B to point C. So, from rape and possession, that's A, to marriage that grants full status, safety, and puts honor in the hands of the woman, to... C, the ideal, no forced marriages, a return to the original intent God had for marriage, which we saw way back in the Garden of Eden, which is partners who cover each other's weaknesses with their strengths and work together to be all that they can be. From A to B to C, it's moving forward. Now, a lot of times people see the laws as they're given at point B, And say that's horrible, because they don't recognize Scripture as being living and active. They think it's just this flat law. This is the way things have to be. But that's not what the Bible teaches. In this example, we know the ideal, happy partnership. We know the law that moved people towards that idea, partnership not necessarily happy. And we know where they started. Rape, possession, and oppression. Where do you think God wants you to be on that line? He wants you to be out down at sea. He wants you to be at the ideal. We can see that the law, as it's given, falls short of commanding the ideal. But that ideal is still inside of there. What people hope... What God hopes people can be is inside of that command. The law that it's meant to move us from A to B and encourage us to keep moving until we get to C. It's meant to move us from selfishness to community to true fellowship and kindness. And that's what Jesus means when He says He hasn't come to abolish or set aside the law. He's not saying, look, you got to get rid of this law. But He's going to encourage people to, that they need to go beyond the law. They need to go to the ideal. Got to work past that. He wants the law to accomplish its task by moving people closer to God and the way they were created to live because what had happened is they kind of got stuck at B and forgot that they should keep moving. Here's what Jesus continues to say. This is Matthew 5, verses 18 and 19. He says, Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, look, you can't throw out the law. It moves you from A to B. You need to understand you have to be moving in this direction. If you throw out the law, you go backwards. From B to A. Instead of moving forward towards that ideal that you were created to live in. That's not just me talking, by the way. I'm stealing that right from Jesus as well. That's what Jesus tells us next here in verse 20. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Pharisees and the teachers of the law were good people. Honest. We like to rip them up because they have some bad ideas. But they're good people. You know how I know? Because they're doing the best they can to get close to God the way they know. What do they know? They know the law. So they did everything they could to keep the law perfectly. Which meant they never did anything beyond. They didn't shoot for the ideal. They just tried to keep the law. They didn't look to see, can I do more than God asked? They said, what did God ask? Let me do that. I did that. I'm done. It's like if uh, you didn't want someone to walk on the grass and you put a sign that said, keep off the grass, the Pharisees would look, they'd see the sign, they'd be like, hey, we should keep off the grass. Why don't we build a fence around it so that people have to keep off the grass? In fact, people could still lean over the fence and touch the grass. So why don't we put a fence around that fence so that no one could touch the grass? You know, right now, people can still see the grass. They might want to climb the fence. How about we build a wall around the fence, around the fence, next to the sign that says, keep off the grass. Now that no one can see the grass, it's all good, right? Well, maybe God just wanted the grass to grow so that come summertime, you could go out and fly a kite. There's an ideal that you need to look for. And if you get stuck in the law, you forget to see the beauty of the grass. Right? Why is this important for Jesus to teach his disciples? Well, he's told them how the world really works is different than what they thought. He's told them, you guys are stuck here, where you think that puffing yourself up in one area or the other because you do good at keeping the law there, that is all that you're supposed to do. And he's saying, no, look, you need to go further. You need to be (laughs) seeking for God. You need to hunger and thirst for righteousness so that you can be filled. Don't just hunger and thirst for I can do pretty good at doing this thing. You've got to shoot for more. Now that Jesus has told them the world works differently than they thought, and he's told them that they need to live this out and show their living to the world, he's telling them, look, I want you to understand, I'm not telling you to set aside the law I'm teaching you how to accomplish the law by moving past it. Is there anything in the law that we talked about? So we went from forced rape, forced marriage, to, you know what, you're going to kill her family because they're your enemies, but you need to treat her as a proper wife, and you give her the keys to the relationship, essentially. It's still horrible. I, there's no way to use this example It's not horrible. Oh, man. To see the ideal of fellowship, the ideal partnership. Is there anything, if you just went to the ideal partnership, is there anything there that violates the law? If you say to yourself, hey, maybe I won't slaughter her family, maybe I'll just ask if I could marry her. Is there anything there that broke the law? No. But the law is one thing. And beyond the law to the ideal is the next thing. So we want to get beyond the law to the ideal. Jesus is about to give some examples of how to surpass the law and move to the ideal in some very important areas. And people who are hearing him or reading his words now can very easily misunderstand what Jesus is telling them. He's not saying, throw out the law. He's saying, Move to the ideal. You with me? Mm -hmm. He's telling them, keep going closer to God. Just do it differently. Do it better. Don't stop because you followed the letter of the law. Go beyond that. In uh, one of the commentaries that I used to study, the Cornerstone Commentary, uh, the authors explained it this way. It said, the basic point of this passage is that if Jesus has not come to destroy, but to fulfill the law, then the entire law is eternally valid. And the disciples have to obey Jesus as its ultimate interpreter, and then teach his interpretations of it in order to have moral uprightness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees and is fitting for the kingdom. Which is a long thing, I know, I'm sorry. In short, the way Jesus tells us to look at things is what matters. Let me say that again so that you don't miss the emphasis here. The way that Jesus tells us to look at things is what matters. Everything that came before has to be looked at according to the way Jesus viewed it. The views of Jesus can't be ignored, broken, or twisted to conform to other understandings. When uh, Israel first went into the Promised Land back in the days of Joshua... Their first big encounter was the city of Jericho, a big, walled, fortified city. And when the walls came down, the army of Israel swept in and slaughtered every man, woman, child, and animal as part of their conquest of the land. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and her family were spared because she had protected two of Israel's spies before the invasion and had given herself to them and to God said, I will watch over you. I'll sneak you out of the city. I want to be part of your people. I want to worship your God. But they slaughtered every man, woman, child, and animal inside the city. How do we reconcile this with Jesus saying, love your enemies? So if we interpret the things Jesus said through the things that happened before, we might say, well, Jesus said to love our enemies... Uh, but that really only means as long as they help us out, like Rahab helped out the spies. And um, otherwise, we can go ahead and kill all of our enemies. Does that sound like what Jesus was trying to say? No. No, because it's not. So if we interpret the old story through what Jesus said, we can look at the story and see how God's grace was actually made available to everyone in the city, but the only person who took it was Rahab. When the spies... Talk to Rahab about the fact that they're spies. She says, yeah, everyone in the city knows that your army is right outside on the other side of the river. And we know that God has given the city into your hands. And we know that you will destroy us. And then she says, I want to be part of your people. I want to follow your God. That meant that every single person in the city could have said, we know that this is God's land. He's promised it to Israel. We know that God is going to let them destroy us. Maybe we should turn ourselves over. Amen. Rahab, accepting God's grace not only saved her, it saved everyone in her household. Could have been as many as a hundred people. It gave her household and everyone in it a place in the people of God. They became instrumental in being part of God's plan. Rahab herself, she's part of the genealogy of Jesus. If you read who all the ancestors were, she's like one of the great-great-grandmothers of Jesus. Without her, we wouldn't have had the Messiah. We can see that loving our enemies can bring about a result even more powerful than putting them to the sword. So when we read that story through Jesus' interpretation of the law, we see that greater things can come from following Jesus than can come from just following the law. So the point is that we need to listen to Jesus so that we can move from point B to point C. We have to stop trying to ignore the clear directives of Jesus that it's so easy to say, you know what, Jesus said this, but look how people behaved before then. Like that's an excuse. And the reality is, Jesus said... Jesus. Well, actually, that's the reality right there. Jesus said... How many uh, agree with my belief that Jesus is God? Amen. Jesus said, should there be a but that comes after that? No. Who gets to decide? Jesus gets to decide. So he has made that clear. And I'm sorry to to keep teasing what's coming, but over the next two weeks, we're going to go through the things that Jesus says, you have heard it said. But I tell you. Because what the people have heard is the law, point B. And Jesus is going to say, you need to go past that. You have to be at point C. You have to be at point C. You have to keep moving towards God. And that's what's going to freak people out. (laughs) And ultimately, that's why they're going to have him killed. Because he keeps telling them they can be more by caring more, living in community more, and showing more kindness to one another than they had up to that point. Not really a great altar call story this morning, sorry. Great. Hey, if you need to talk to God, look, we've got these places of prayer. You're always welcome to come on and pray up here. You could do it right in the middle of my talking, it's fine. God doesn't just meet you at the altar here, though. He'll meet you right at your seat. Right where you are. Right where you are i'm going to close this time in prayer if that's all right father thank you for your word thank you for the the teaching of your son thank you that you were willing to become jesus so that we had a a physical tangible thing to hang on to and follow It can be hard to follow a God who created the entire universe because you're too big for us to comprehend. But we know that through through Jesus, you have lived the same lives we have. You have understood what it means to be human, and you have overcome the temptations and challenges that we face. Please help us to learn to follow in the direction that you are leading, so that we can become the people we were created to be together. Thank you, Lord